For over two decades, our charge at Calvary has been to build a church without walls. The church is not a building. It's not an address. It's the people. For 20 years, we've been building people, people who love Jesus, love each other, and love our neighbors locally and globally. And we've seen God at work, giving hope to kids in Myanmar, raising up leaders in Central PA, loving our neighbors, and and making a difference on campuses throughout our region. In the last 20 years, we've gone from impacting one city to four. We've helped to launch three different churches. And along the way, we've given millions of dollars to serve those in the margins of life here and around the world. So what's next? What's next is our 2030 vision. In 2017, we began a process of discovering God's vision for our next chapter, and we began to dream. We began to dream of a great movement of prayer that would see every person in our region regularly prayed for by name. We began to dream of restoring marriages, nurturing families, and seeing 1,000 children and students make a decision to follow Jesus. We began to dream of sending thousands of front yard missionaries to be Jesus on every campus, every workplace, and every neighborhood in Central PA. We began to dream of being a catalyst for revival at Penn State and every school in our region. Ultimately, those dreams led to our 2030 vision. It is our vision to be part of a movement, to see the number of Jesus apprentices in Central PA double by 2030. In the process, catalyzing an epic release of leaders. So what's next? What's next is a step of faith into a journey of uncertainty, where nothing will be more important than the gracious hand of God upon us, blessing us so we can bless others. What's next? What's next is the Christ call to be the church, an opportunity to experience the soul-stretching joy of being part of a team engaged in a mission to give living proof of a loving God to the 340,000 people in Central PA with no church connection, especially in the next generation. What's next? What's next is an opportunity to be a pioneering church, seeking to innovate the shape of the next church of Christ's future, a church that will reach the generations to come. How will we get to what's next? Together. For the next seven years, we'll pray like never before. Together. For the next seven years, we'll love the next generation like never before. And whatever is next, we'll get there by his hand together. So what's the next step? In our next initiative, we have three goals. Number one is we will prioritize the next generation. We will passionately pursue the good of the next generation, helping them love Jesus and lead the church into all God has for us in the decades to come. Number two, we will bless every neighbor in our communities. We will pray like crazy and grow in generosity. We will step in faith and live in God's overflow. We will share Jesus with our hashtag. Number three, we will prepare in faith for the fulfillment of the 2030 vision. We will begin to pay off debt, design structures, gather resources, and start gatherings that will prepare us for revival and for a doubling of Christ's followers in Central PA. Over 65 years ago, 18 people gathered for Calvary's very first worship service in a dance hall called Woodman Hall. Four years later, 15 people signed on as charter members. Not a huge start. And it wasn't easy. But over the course of the years, God has blessed. And in 2018, God led us to our 2030 vision. And we were on a roll. Eight worship services in five different locations. We had 2,400 people at our Christmas Eve services in 2019. And then COVID hit. 
And if you look at the numbers, it seems like we're further from our vision now than when we started. But over and over again the last few years, I've had this simple sense of the whisper of God saying, Dan, don't settle. Ask me for more. And I'm asking you to do that with me. Ask him for more. That's what's next. Hey, Calvary Online folks, my name is Jorn. If you haven't seen me around lately, I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary, and I have the privilege of sharing our next message on living in the overflow as we focus on our next steps as a movement of churches heading towards our 2030 vision of doubling the amount of Christ followers in our city, region, and even the world. With the initiative of raising up and releasing an overflow of empowered leaders for the next generation. In the last eight weeks, we've been encouraged to see the potential we each have to be a part of God's dream, to seek God with all our hearts, to experience great grace, to make room for others, and to let Jesus fill us with more of himself. All of this comes from this place of overflow. But let me say, none of this happens without Jesus. To the degree of revelation you have, on Jesus being your eternal Savior and the perfect template will overflow exists in your lives. I find this truth in a famous core verse that has resonated with me when I think about how I've experienced overflow in my walk with Jesus, and it comes from John 10.10. Jesus said this, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You may have heard teachings or the phrase about living the abundant life. That word abundant, defined in scripture, means superfluous. It means to have more than enough. But I like the definition of uncontainable. So let me show you what I mean by using this illustration. Imagine someone is pouring a drink of water and you're incredibly thirsty. They ask how full you want the glass and you say, fill it to the top. And as they begin to pour the drink, you're looking forward to them filling the glass completely full and how refreshing it's going to be when you drink it. But as they get closer to the top, as they begin to pour in, they're pouring so fast that you start to begin get concerned because you begin to realize like, oh my gosh, they're going to overfill it. And so you sense this anxiousness because you realize how precious that water is, and you don't want them to waste it. Yet they keep pouring and pouring and pouring until it gets to the top. And as you put your hand out to say, no, don't pour anymore, they just keep pouring until the water begins to overflow the glass. Now, I want you to know that I think that this is a picture of the abundant life. This is where we actually experience the overflow. And as part of our next initiative and where we fit into the Lord's plan for us in the area of financial generosity, I'd like to take the rest of the time to share my wife Bonnie and I's journey over 30 years of seeing how God has taught us about riches and what truly life is. So let me pray for us. Lord, we are grateful for the plans and purposes that you have with our life and even with our resources, our possessions, and our finances. 
We know, God, that there's power in these things. And we know that as we submit them to you, that you're able to do incredibly good things with it. And so I'm just asking, Lord, that you would just help us to have our hearts open to what you might be trying to say to us about the very things that we have been given by you that we can use to make a difference in the world that we live in and the lives of people. So just help us to be tender in our hearts, keep our ears open to the things that you want to say to us, and give us courage when we sense a challenge from the Holy Spirit to do something with what we have. In Jesus' name. So the theme text for this message comes from 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. And it says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, I think to address these verses, we should start with the two questions that are bookends to experiencing the overflow. First, what does it mean to be rich? And what does it mean to truly have life? I mean, I think the world that we live in right now and the things that we experience, we kind of live in a place where we have to try to reconcile these two areas because sometimes it feels like they're contradictory ideas when it comes to the kingdom of God. So I just want to bring a little bit of clarity as we head into the rest of these verses. First thing, to be rich is not a sin. There are tons of scriptures on wealth. Matter of fact, there are over 2,300 verses on wealth and money compared to only 500 verses on faith and prayer. But we need to determine what we see as wealth and riches versus what God actually says about it. Secondly, being rich isn't about how much money you have. It's what you do with it to produce life. Let me say this, and this isn't original with me, but I agree with it. Being rich isn't a sign of your spirituality unless it is. And if it isn't a sign, it doesn't mean that it actually can't be. I think these verses press into that. I think this is why the verses end with what is truly life. What does life look like? That word life comes from the Greek word zoe. Zoe is defined as absolute fullness of life that belongs to and comes from God. Life that is real and genuine. Life that is active and vigorous. We call this the God life. Life lived out now. Eternal life manifested in our actual earthly lives. If we believe that all life belongs and comes from God, then what we have in regards to riches and wealth should result in an active and vigorous expression of his life flowing and overflowing through the very blessings God has provided for us. So we could say and pray, Jesus, use everything you've given me to let not only myself but others experience that which is truly life. So with this in mind, there have been three core convictions that Bonnie and I have lived by. Live modestly, give generously, and steward wisely. But I also want to provide a disclaimer. 
living this way has been a challenge. We haven't always gotten it right because God needed to do lots of deep things in our own hearts in learning to trust him. But I want you to know, as I worked on this message and I reminisced, we are both grateful for the lessons we've learned that now shape our very lives and these core convictions. So this idea of living modestly, what does it actually mean? Here it says, you know, we're reminded that the rich in this present age, they shouldn't be prideful, they shouldn't be haughty, they shouldn't set their hopes on riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, I'll be honest, there have been many times when this has been a challenge and a tough one for both of us. Bonnie and I both came from families that didn't have much, and my own experience has shaped some of my very own struggles with this idea of what it means to live modestly. I've shared a little bit about this in the past, but both my parents were alcoholics, and that dictated a lot of their life. And there was one incident that shaped me and caused me to vacillate over the years when it comes to this idea of what I really need. When I was a teenager, I really needed a new pair of sneakers because I went through shoes pretty quickly. And I told my mom one day I really wanted a pair of what was called Pro-Keds, which are, at that time, were really a, a good pair of sneakers. And my mom said she didn't want to pay that much. And so she took me to this store called the Ben Franklin, which imagine, it's kind of like a dollar general, but they have shoes there. And everything was cheap. And there she told me to pick out a pair of sneakers and I can remember how cheap and how ugly they were and how much I didn't want them. But I had to take them. And so on the way home, we stopped at the beer distributor and bought cases of beer. And something happened in that moment when I realized that she spent more money on the beer than what a pair of pro kids would have cost. And as we were in that car, I had this thought, I'm not going to live like this. And when I'm old enough, I'm going to get what I want. For years, and even after becoming a Christian, I didn't realize how I put my hope in the uncertainty of riches. I think for all of us, it takes a while until we see how much our finances are tied to a false sense of enjoyment. See, the problem is I became a slave. I became a slave to what I wanted. I became a slave to debt. I got enticed by the things of the world, and I had bought into this lie that even now, even as I got older, somehow I still needed those pro kids. Now, maybe some of you know this, but years ago, before analytics was a hot-button word, credit card companies had come up with their own plan. When they would offer you their business, they would determine how much you were going to make in your whole lifetime. And they would figure out how much of your money they would be able to get through debt. This is an issue that can't be dealt with unless we come to the place where we understand what we're satisfied with. At times, this trickled into our Christian life. Eventually, we realized it didn't actually take much to be happy and to get, live a good life. And as we've chosen to live modestly, it's really given us the ability to hear God when he wants to do something with our finances. Because see, the voice of debt will always say no to God and the blessing of being able to live with joy and honor him. I also believe the reverse can happen when we live in so, with so much fear and not having enough, which has the same power as debt. It's the opposite but the same. The fear that God will not take care of us is linked 
to what I call a pauper mentality. Listen, if you're afraid of being poor and not having enough, then you already are. It doesn't matter how much you have. So the question needs to still be answered. When do I truly live? I think that happens when we realize we need to surrender our souls to Jesus to actually surrender our riches. Because only Jesus can supply our deepest needs. And if our souls are tied to stuff, then living modestly is finding contentment and being thankful for what I have without actually living like a pauper. I think this is critical and it empowers us, empowers our conviction to actually give generously. And so when we talk about giving generously, the scripture says they are to do good, to do good with their riches, to be generous and actually ready to share. So what does it mean to be generous? What's your starting point? Though I never experienced generosity or were taught it, I knew giving was important. There was something intrinsically wound in me. And at the time I became a Christian, Bonnie was still a few months behind. And I'm not sure how I knew about the tithe, and it meant that I was supposed to give 10% of our gross income. But between the two of us at that time, we grossed around $600 a week. So the Sunday after I was saved, I wrote out a check for $60 without discussing it with Bonnie. Let's just say it didn't go well. (laughs) I knew I dropped the ball on that one. And I was feeling bad, and so I asked my pastor if we could talk, and he and told him what had happened, and I told him I I wanted to do what was right in God's eyes, and he said this. He said, Jorn, God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. If he has that, everything will work out fine. I want you to know that that is such a simple yet profound truth that works in the context of generosity, and it gave me peace, and I knew I could wait on the Lord to speak to Bonnie. I asked her if we could come up with an agreement on what we would give each week, and we went from there. And so a few months later, Bonnie gave her life to Jesus. And without even discussing it, she wrote the check out for $60 that next Sunday. And in 30 years of knowing Jesus, we've never missed a tithe, no matter how difficult it was, no matter what we were going through. Now, as I said, that doesn't mean it wasn't challenging at times. Those early years were lean, and at times, we lived paycheck to paycheck. I think for most of us who are going to understand these verses and what it actually means to us and our future, sometime along the way, we'll need to go through this, where we have to decide what it actually means to be a generous person. But let me say this, giving and being generous, I don't think they're the same thing, but as we give and we saw God's faithfulness through the lean years, we went from givers to actually being generous. I wish I had time to tell you all the stories of God's grace in this area, but it changed us to the point when whenever someone asked us, we knew that if there was a need, we will always give. And up to this day, if someone comes to me, comes to my wife and say, hey, you know, do, can you help us with this? We always give. We've chosen to do that because we've seen historically and being faithful just with the 10% that God had done a lot of powerful things in our heart. And you might be saying, Jorn, you don't understand. Even if I wanted to, it's not possible. I don't have enough. 
I'm not saying it's easy to live by faith, but I want you to know it is possible. If you want to do good and have set your intentions on being ready to share, God will use you. He will make a way for you. So, you know, kind of like this illustration. For some of you, your glass is only half full, and it never seems to get any fuller. Like, you're always at this place where maybe you even know you should give more or you should start tithing, and you just kind of look in the natural, and you look at what you have, and you say to yourself, I don't have enough. Let me say this to you. Sometimes we have to give what we don't have to get what God has. Sometimes we have to take what we have and we give it away. And when we do that, because of God's grace and the way that he works, he begins to pour himself back into us until we begin to experience the overflow. So we must ask ourselves, who's rich? Who's the rich one? Are we rich or is God rich? I believe that when we look at the promises of God, even from the verses that we're looking at today, we can find hope that somehow God is able to take whatever we have, if we'll give it to him and be generous, and God will change these situations. See, I say this because as we trust Jesus, he trusts us. And that means to steward wisely. It says that when we understand this, we store up treasures for ourselves as a good foundation for the future. And I think sometimes we can look at stewardship as saving instead of actually investing. But may I suggest that stewardship is about spending. I'm reminded of the parable of the talents where the master gives three of his servants a certain sum of his possessions, and he tells them to use it and get a good return on it. The Bible says the first two took what they were given and they used it, and they were able to make money off of that and bring it back to their master. But it says the third one, he kept it because of fear of losing what he'd actually been given. See, holding on to what we have isn't storing up treasures. It's actually losing out on the potential for Jesus to trust us with his riches. Years ago, when we first moved to State College, we were trying to be good Dave's Ram- Dave Ramsey followers. And we're putting money into our savings. And we had built it up to like $1,500. Now, that might not seem much to you, but to us, that was a lot at that time. And it was the best investment we had. And there was a young man who we knew who couldn't finish his degree at Penn State because he owed money. And one day as I was taking a walk, the Lord spoke to me. And I then told Bonnie, we're supposed to give our savings to him. And without knowing it, We wrote out the check for all the money that we had in our savings, and we handed him that check for $1,500. And that $1,500 was exactly what he needed to pay his debt off so that he could finish his school. I think that was amazing. But I don't think that happens until we understand the principles that I've been sharing with you. And by the way, he wasn't a Christian, and weeks later, he gave his life to Jesus because of that gift. See, within a few days... The Lord returned the money then and gave us almost 10 times as much. I was blown away. I went to the mailbox and here there was money in there that someone had decided to give us and it was more than we ever gave. See, stewardship is wealth management, 
but it's actually faith management. And when we realize everything we have belongs to God, it empowers us to trust him and vice versa. But you're spending and storing up of eternal treasures. What does that look like for you? What does it mean for you to do that? And what are you building that is eternal? See, as a good foundation, it says that we have this for the future. And I believe from our testimony, if we follow these principles, there is nothing Jesus can't do with your finances. I'm not sure where you stand with all of this, but let me encourage you to ask Jesus to show you at least a glimpse of what true true living actually looks like, to truly live. For Bonnie and I, our greatest joys have been God using what we have to build eternal things. Now, some of you may know this, but part of who we are is a love for Myanmar and the work the Lord has done through our own ministry called the Mercy Tree. And so in the last eight years, Jesus has used our meager riches and the help of friends to build orphanages, to serve children, and to plant churches. Most of you know our friend Boy and the two buildings we built two years ago. And right now, we're in the midst of helping our friend Titus. Even as I speak, he's building a home for him and his children. So each time we felt like Jesus has asked us, it's been a leap of faith. It's been this idea of like, I can hold on to what I have and say, God has given this to me, or I can actually say, God, I'm going to give it back to you. And each time God has supernaturally showed up because he cares about building eternal treasures and because we've chosen to be faithful with our riches and we can see the overflow of God's grace in our lives. So what about you? What about our next initiative? Where will Jesus use you and fill you to overflowing? See, we have a choice. We have a place where we can see God work in our life. Maybe some of you, you just feel empty. But I'm telling you, the same way that God used us, the same way that God has used my friends, I believe the promise is, again, that God will pour out his spirit, his resources on you, and you'll be able to use whatever he gives you to bring overflow. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your love today. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for your testimony that works in the hearts of people. Thank you, Lord, that we each have a story to tell of your faithfulness when we offer you our riches, when we realize that only you can satisfy the deepest needs of our heart, and yet you can take the very things that we have from this earth and use them because they belong to you. You're our Lord, and because you are our Lord, we know that everything we have, you've given us, and we just want to return it back to you and however you see fit. Help us to have courage and faith. Help us to see even the next initiative, the buy-in that's there. Even for Bonnie and I, we can't wait to give towards the next initiative because we know that God will use that to bring overflow to people who are empty and they have nothing. So we say thank you for Jesus for the power of his cross, for the message of hope that we find in him. And as we go about our week this week, will you give us a moment of clarity, a glimpse into what eternity looks like when we submit everything we have to you 
so that we can experience true life. In Jesus' name, amen.